Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So, um, we're at week 11, chapter 11, chapter 11. Uh, this chapter is on the precepts, the paramitas, and uh, taking refuge. Uh, and the first two um, topics relate directly to what it means to take true refuge and how, um, and also relates to the virtuous factors of the Eightfold Path in that it is our behavior, as always, that will show us, if we're willing to look at it, what we're holding in mind, the present level of mindfulness. Um, and these are very simple and direct um, instructions from the Buddha on how to go from someone who might be rooted in ignorance and prone to uh, self-referential views leading to hurtful behavior towards oneself and others, um, and if you're able to incorporate these, it's also a check on your Dhamma practice. If you can act like this, your Dhamma practice is going well. Uh, of course, it's not just the only harbinger of, of, uh, of uh, authentic Dhamma practice. But if you're not acting in this way, um, there's something amiss in your Dhamma practice. And again, it's not to judge yourself harshly. It's simply to notice if you're not able to incorporate these precepts and paramitas and take true refuge there's something missing in your Dhamma practice. And this is why the Buddha taught. He didn't teach um, morality as a way to get a reward. He taught morality or ethics as an as a internal personal check on what we hold in mind. And that's what's important here. Um, so I'm not going to read the whole chapter because I know you all did and you did, all did your homework. Um, I'm just going to review some of it and then I'm going to read the Ratana Sutta. So the five Buddhist precepts for lay people, and let me qualify that. Um, if you were, uh, if you took uh, vows, even preliminary vows, and, and it depends what tradition you're in, but in the Buddha's uh, original Sangha, there would have been about 120 um, precepts, which are just um, ways, ways to act. And the reason why there was more for lay people as opposed to those that had gone forth uh, is because the Buddha found that, when, over time, by the way, too, that living within a community um, other things would come up, uh, other forms of behavior that wouldn't normally come up if you were isolated uh, or you were living outside of the Sangha. Um, and so he, he added additional precepts for people that were taking vows. And, um, and even in some traditions, uh, and I always found it curious, uh, in some Theravadan traditions, there's, and again, depending on the, the, uh, the actual uh, lineage, there's about 180 precepts that men would take but women had to take 240 precepts. <laughs> There's a reason for that. No, I'm just kidding about that. It, it was always interesting. That has to do with more of the um, the attitude of the time. Uh, and and I won't get too deep into it, but it's really more for the protection of women uh, and, and certain attitudes that people held back then. So, the five precepts for lay people. Refrain from killing or taking life. And the Buddha wouldn't just say, do this. He would tell us, he would instruct us on how to act. Act with goodwill and loving kindness. Simple and direct, isn't it? Number two, refrain from stealing or taking what is not freely given. Be generous. Refrain from false, unnecessary, misleading, harmful, or impatient speech. 
Speak with kindness, honesty, and mindfulness. Again, see how these relate also to the virtuous factors. Number four, refrain from sexual misconduct or using sex in a selfish or harmful manner. Be content in giving. Uh, notice the Buddha is not teaching lay people that you shouldn't engage in sex because that has nothing to do with developing a dog. Uh, celibacy does not relate directly to any kind of internal understanding. In the in the Asanga, though, men and women um, uh, were not encouraged to, to have sex, but that was only for practical reasons because of things that would develop. And it, it, again, it's just... Um, it just shows the brilliance of the Buddha. But what he did teach was to incorporate the Dhamma in all aspects of our life, including something that is so uh, significant in our sexual relationships. And he said basically the same thing as he says in other, in other aspects of the Dhamma, be content and giving or be content and generous in your sexual activity. Rather than, um, I don't want to get too dependent, but rather than using uh, our sexual relations as some kind of power play, uh, or, or or ways of manipulating each other, which unfortunately happens often. Uh, if if we just keep in mind that um, my sexual relationships with other people must be based on the same principles I'm developing in all other aspects of life, meaning that my focus should be on contentment and generosity rather than what can I get out of it. Number five, refrain from the use of intoxic- intoxicants so to be mindful and thoughtful. And aren't all of these so relevant 2,600 years later, particularly that last one, but all of them? Um, and, and again, I won't get into too much of that, but these are good things to hold in mind, even to maybe you know, write on your refrigerator to remind yourself of it on a daily basis. Because if you're not able to act in this way um, mindfully, it's simply a, 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 a check on your Dhamma practice. There's something that needs to be further developed. The paramitas, the word paramitas, I'll read it here, means the great perfection. So these are, are, and mita means mind. So these are great perfections of the mind. And a little story here. Sariputta, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, questioned the Buddha one day. How many qualities are are there to be developed in the Dhamma? The Buddha responds, there are 10 qualities developed in the Dhamma. What are these 10? And again, relates directly to the Dhamma as we develop the Dhamma internally, we'll act in, in this way, and it also relates directly to the virtuous factors of the Eightfold Path. What ten? Giving, virtue, renunciation. Renunciation of what? It's not just renunciation of material things or attaching ourselves to material things, but ultimately it's renunciation of ignorance rooted in uh, ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Re- renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And all of this relates to uh, that fourth level of mindfulness that the Buddha teaches and also the fourth level of jhana to maintain a mind of equanimity no matter what's occurring. I often reference that by saying we, we become peaceful. We learn to become peaceful with a less than peaceful mind state. That's equanimity. So the Buddha's teaching doesn't um, uh, take us out of the human life it, it allows us to deeply engage in human life and feel everything that's appropriate in the moment without losing our minds over, without losing that, that level of equanimity, being at peace with less than peaceful mind states. Uh, these are my words here. Giving or dana is the, per, the first perfection and incorporates all of the other perfections. In fact, there is an aspect of each paramita and all the other states. 
These are qualities we all possess and are developed further as the behaviors rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion are put aside. It's, it's really a natural development. And as I described, what awakening really means is true human maturity. Of course, a, a human being that is truly mature will, of course, act in this way uh, simply as a natural expression of who they are because they've, they've abandoned all of the, um, the greed, aversion, and deluded thinking that would lead to uh, unskillful and hurtful behavior and simply are now resting in the Dhamma. There's nothing, as the Buddha would say, there's nothing left within me to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance. And again, it's just a check on our Dhamma practice. Um, so the Ratana Sutta uh, just fits in with this, and at this point in the, in the Dhamma uh, study, we're getting to the end. We've developed the practice to a certain point where we can take true refuge. Uh, this is, again, one of the most um, misunderstood and misapplied uh, aspects of modern Buddhism, excuse me. Because usually, um, well, not usually, almost <laughs> all the time, uh, magical and mystical aspects have been attached to, to this simple process of taking refuge, uh, the three jewels, the, the, three, the triple refuge. Uh, we take refuge in the Buddha, his Dhamma, and a well-focused and well-informed Sangha. Um, so the, uh, the first refuge is taking refuge in the understanding that a human being did this. That's taking true refuge, not in, in worshiping or developing some type, type of worshipful, worshipful um, response towards the Buddha or elevating him to a godlike status. That's, the Buddha never taught that. But there's great comfort in understanding that a human being just like us, just like me, has done this. And he did something even more important is he left his teaching for us, the Dhamma. So the only way we can take true refuge is to take refuge in the idea that a human being did this and also to take refuge in his Dhamma. Taking refuge in something else that the Buddha didn't teach is refuge in that, but not in this. And then the last thing the Buddha taught, and I talked to, Mike and I talked a little bit about this earlier, um, the, a well-focused and well-informed Sangha incorporates taking refuge in the Buddha and his Dhamma. And it's... it's um, it's apparent and revealed in a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. And what is incredibly remarkable to me is how every class that we have, because of you, because of your own development of the Dhamma, is just that. It's, it's, and it, you're incorporating the other two aspects in your own refuge practice because of this, the way you participate and, and the way that we operate our Sangha. So, uh, the teaching known as the Jewel Discourse, or the Ratana Sutta, was given in the city of Asali at a time of widespread famine and spreading disease. Much like today, isn't it? There were many dead bodies as the conditions overwhelmed the ability for it to properly dispose of the bodies. The local citizens sought out the Buddha's help who was nearby in Rajagaha. The Buddha arrived in Vasali a short time later with a large number of monks, including Ananda. Just before the Buddha's arri arrival, torrential rains helped the situation somewhat by cleansing the landscape of rotted corpses and cleaning the air and water. It's quite a description of how awful the, 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 it was there at the time. But again, it's kind of re reflected uh, in what's occurring today, at least in the quality of our minds that have developed as a, as a response to, to these worldly conditions. The Buddha, the Buddha, sorry, the Buddha presented this teaching to an entire city overcome by physical and emotional suffering. 
Prior to his presenting this discourse, he instructed his attending monks to walk through the city and do what they could to ease the physical suffering of the citizens and to individually present this teaching. So this relates to an important aspect of the of Dhamma practice that Tim brought up um, what's today on Saturday's practice. Uh, Tim, you don't mind if I talk about what you said about the uh, B12 and vitamin D? That's fine. Thank you. Um, so uh, Tim was having some difficulties deepening his concentration, and he did a very wise thing. He went to a doctor and got a blood test, and he found out that he was deficient in B12 and vitamin D. And alleviating that problem has helped uh, helped him greatly. Is that correct, Tim? Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you. And so it, re- it relates to something that's so important to the Dhamma. We don't take to the Dhamma so we can disregard our humanity. We take to the Dhamma so that we can enhance our, our humanity. And an aspect of a mind united in its body is mindfulness of what this body needs to thrive and to flourish as a human, as a human entity, a human being. And the Buddha, this is an example of that. Before the Buddha taught this, this, this suffering city, he didn't just go in there and say, you know, take to the Four Noble Truths and you're going to be good to go and this will never happen to you again and believe in me and worship me and, and kiss my feet. He didn't do any of that. The first thing he did is he attended to the physical needs of the popular of the city and then he taught the Dhamma. We should learn from that. We need to take care of our physical needs as well as taking to the Dhamma. And it's such an important thing. Uh, sometimes it's related to, to jhana meditation. I talked about this a few weeks ago, I think on a Thursday class, that if we're not getting enough sleep, Oftentimes we'll take to the we'll, we'll start our meditation and we'll immediately want to fall asleep. Sometimes that's just resistance to jhana practice, but we need to look at that. We need to get enough sleep. We need to get exercise. We should consider eating good. I consider we should eat good food. This is all taking care of of ourselves in a mindful way. So again, if the if the motivation is, um, let me eat nothing but carrots, so I'm going to live to be 140. That's self referential views. But to understand that we're having a human life and uniting our mind and our body, excuse me, and uniting our mind and our body informs us that we need to take care of the body as well as the mind. So, okay. So the Buddha sent his, the, sent his monks to take care of their, their physical needs. At the formal teaching, the Buddha then pre- presented a way to bring true refuge from the stress and suffering of the world. And to put an end to all, uh, I, I wrote this, uh, to put an end to all dukkha, but it's really all self-referential and self-imposed dukkha. The Buddha's words. May all beings assembled here have peace of mind. W- when I read that now, you know, the, probably the first hundred times I read this, it didn't really have that much of an impact on me. But that one sentence shows me the incredible compassion that the Buddha had. He started out with, I'm here to show you how to have peace of mind which is really what every human being wants, isn't it? No matter how we get confused about how to get that. Uh, some people think that the, the mo- if they get a lot of power, they can have peace of mind or a big house or a big uh, bank account or whatever it might be, uh, or the right girlfriend or the right boyfriend. We all hang peace of mind on those acquisitions. When the Buddha realized that there's none of that, may all beings assembled here have peace of mind. May all beings assembled here listen mindfully to these words. May you all radiate goodwill and loving kindness to all who offer help and understanding to you. Understand this. There is no more precious jewel, no more refuge, 
no more comfort than the Buddha. Now think about this with Siddhartha Gautama right in front of you giving this teaching and what that means. He's holding himself in, out in front of the people that most need to understand their own humanity. And that's what the Buddha is saying. Let me read his words again and listen to it in that way. There is no more precious jewel, no more refuge, no more comfort than the human Buddha. I added the word human there. Because he's holding himself as a, out as an example to these people in, in deep distress that they can do this too. The Buddha continues, and I love these lines. As woodland grows in the early heat of summer are crowned with blossoming flowers, so is the sublime Dhamma leading to common peace of nirvana. Nirvana or nibbana means awake, the awakened state. The peerless and excellent awakened one, the teacher of true understanding, the teacher of the noble path is the Buddha, the one who has awakened. Again, holding himself out as a human being who is able to accomplish what he's about to teach them. He's not giving them something impossible to do, uh, which is how most of modern Buddhas was presented to me. You never can really awaken. It takes endless eons and eons and eons to awaken, but go ahead and do it anyway. That was always so disappointing and I would say, looking back on it now, I would say mentally debilitating to me because it was so, um, uh, it, it, it offered no hope, did it? Because I wanted to understand then what it means to be a human being. I didn't care too much about being a, a disincarnate being and getting a reward for all my good acts. I wanted to know what's going on with me right now. And the Buddha taught that. The Buddha continued. There is no more precious jewel than the teachings of the Buddha, the Dhamma. Understanding this brings true liberation and freedom. The Buddha, calm and mindful, has experienced the cessation of clinging and desire. The deathless state of nirvana has been attained. What is it? the deathless state? Again, this is where uh, those inclined towards mysticism and magic will say, see, the Buddha was, te was teaching uh, and uh, complete reincarnation and, um, and living forever, the deathless state. Of course, that's not what the Buddha means. The Buddha relates a mind living in ignorance of four noble truths as a living death. And when he's talking about the deathless state, he's talking about a human being who in this lifetime has recognized and abandoned that, that uh, uh, life-taking ignorance. That's the deathless state when he refers to that. The deathless state of nirvana, or the, again, you have to understand what nirvana means, not how it's usually applied. The deathless state of nirvana is a deathless state of an awakened human being. The Buddha teaches a noble, these are the Buddha's words. The Buddha teaches the noble eightfold path that unfailingly brings concentration, liberation, and freedom. He's again, he, obviously he's talking about himself. There is no more precious jewel than the Dhamma. So the Buddha is talking about no more precious jewel than the human Buddha who did this. And there's no more precious jewel than his teachings on how to do it. Then the Buddha continues. There is no more precious jewel than the Sangha. And so I always add, there's no more precious jewel than a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. Understanding this brings true liberation and freedom. The virtuous ones who bring the Dhamma, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Each and every one of you are the virtuous ones. You think about the way that we all interact as a Sangha and support each other and inspire each other to continue with the Dhamma. That's what the Buddha is saying. It's not just your wonderful teacher. It's all of you are the jewel of the Sangha because 
you are well informed, um, and you and you you stick to that when we're when we're gathered as a sangha. Those with steadfast minds, free of clinging, they are the jewel of the sangha. Those that understand with wisdom the four noble truths, they are the jewel of the sangha. Those that gain true insight and abandon self-delusion, doubt, and indulgence in meaningless rites and rituals, they are the jewel of the sangha. For many, many years, I engaged in meaningless rites and rituals before, during, and after um, what might be called a Dhamma class, but it, it's really a Dharma class. It has nothing to do with what the Buddha teaches. <coughs> Excuse me. And in many of um, th- these different traditions, uh, chanting might have been emphasized as importance or a constant bowing or constant visualization, visualiz- visualizing the Buddha or one of the modern Buddhist gods or goddesses like Avalokiteshvara. And, and that's a rite and a ritual that the Buddha repeatedly, it's not just here, he says it repeatedly in many suttas, abandon that idea that you can you can engage in this type of ritualistic behavior is, that is going to do something about changing your mind. It doesn't. Uh, then the Buddha, uh, and, and indulging in meaningless rites and rituals, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Those beyond despair and evil doings, they are the jewel of the, dung, of the Sangha. Beyond despair. Of course, that takes the development of the Dhamma to get beyond the despair of not understanding what, it, what a human being actually is. And it also relates to the precepts and paramitas we just talked about, isn't it? Because those qualities of mind and behavior are free of any despair. Those whose understanding arises from the support of the Sangha those whose understanding arises from the support of the Sangha, who can no longer conceal the truth from themselves due to the Sangha. Does everybody see how we do this in every class? By taking to the Dhamma and then sharing it freely with each other? They are the precious jewel of the Sangha. Those whose karma is extinguished, the future of no concern. I love that line when I think about it. And, you know, I can tell you that um, that's happened to me. Like every human being, I spent most of my life worrying about what's going to happen next. And I don't worry about what's happened next. That, that is one of the most liberating things that the Dhamma ever gave me. But it doesn't mean that I'm, a, I'm wandering through life like a fool. In fact, I am mindfully and acutely aware of what's occurring moment by moment. How? Because I'm, I'm simply mindfully present with it without the aversion or the need for anything to be any different than it is. I got to tell you, when I fell and broke my hip in that moment, I wish things were different. But it didn't last all that long. I, I got over it. And you know, I'm making a little bit of a joke, but I couldn't imagine going through that whole thing or deal without what, what I have developed over the years. I, I think like most people, I would have lost my mind over that and, and maybe not have come back. Who knows? Um, let me go back and, and just say that line again. So, um, Those whose karma is extinguished, the future of no concern, with rebirth ending. I got to stop there again. What's the Buddha talking? He's not talking about not having another human life. He, the Buddhist teachings on birth and rebirth have to do with giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. So as we awaken, there's nothing left in, within us to rebirth another moment rooted in ignorance. So I got to get I start at the beginning of that uh, statement. Those whose karma is extinguished, the future of no concern, with rebirth ending due to the support of the Sangha, this is the precious jewel 
of the Sangha. My teaching. Thank you. I, I, that um, the uh, the Ratana Sutta always makes makes me a little emotional, um, uh, but out of joy because I've established that it's true. It's not something conceptual. Uh, I've experienced this this triple jewel, and it truly is uh, the 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 three jewels of my lifetime. Uh, again, we, Michael and I didn't actually talk about the triple refuge, but we both talked about how important this thing is. And it's, it's, it's the most significant and important aspect of our lives. And I think you would all say the same thing. So um, I, I think, and I hope you all see this, your Dhamma practice uh, as the pure joy, uh, pure jewel that it is. So again, let's, uh, let me start with Paul. Paul, how are you tonight? I'm glad you joined us. Hello, John. It's good to be here. Ah, there you are. Good to see you. Uh, yes, um, I've been making a commitment to be mindful of the Eightfold Path um, lately. Um, I mean, it seems like the more I meditate, the more um, um, I seem to be more mindful of that moment by moment. And um, I've noticed that um, I'm catching my, my, my streams of thought that sometimes wander off into the negative and uh, I can catch, I catch that, and uh, I oh. tell myself, uh, we're not going to go there. And I, I take a breath, and I can, I can abandon it. Um, and it, it's, it's quite liberating to feel to do that because, uh, you know, I used to just uh, run with it, yeah. more or less, and it would, it would basically uh, just take over. At, uh, you know, and it would cause a, a, a poor quality of mind. Yeah. Uh, that um and yes um the 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 dhamma and the buddha and the sangha are jewels they are um i remember reading that a number of years ago when i when i first looked into buddhism and um um you know it took some time for me to understand what that really meant yeah and i'm very uh very happy to be here today with you all. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Paul. I, I, I don't know if you noticed a big smile on my face. I was almost jumping out of my seat to scream at you. Yeah, you're getting it. You know, you just described um, the development of Dhamma practice. And you also are are showing, I, I always say the, there's the, the great importance to actually recognizing that your Dhamma practice is bearing fruit because that, that brings self-encouragement to continue. You, 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 know, you don't need your teacher anymore. Uh, to encourage you to, to, to keep doing it because you're doing it yourself. So thank you for sharing that. Steve, how are you tonight? I'm doing good, thank you very much. <clears throat> and I want to share a little bit uh, from my experience. In 2010, I was take uh, precepts in Theravada tradition. Yep. And uh, I take precepts, you know, and uh, like always was joking about it's nice to keep perceptions look well and it's kind of more okay not killing check not stealing check no sexual misconduct check uh watch uh, speech check no anti-second uh, drink or alcohol or drugs check but uh, recently when i read your book uh, about uh, precepts it started to click for me it's parts of eightfold path. Yeah. 
<laughs> and starting kind of, uh, I reflect is, uh, yeah, it's uh, like, again, it's round. Uh, it's actually why it's Buddha uh, science kind of like wheels have eight uh, spices. And uh, because it's everything tied together. And yeah. uh, mindfulness is kind of like God. It's protect us from uh, bad behavior. And uh, same uh, when you uh, act and uh, in moral conduct, and it's easy to concentrate. And it's easy to concentrate and increase your wisdom. And it's go on and go on. It's everything kind of like tied together. It's very interesting. Kind of like change my uh, a little bit deeper view of precepts. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Stephen. And, and you're so right to see the the precepts and the paramitas as an aspect of the eightfold path, not something separate from it. But of course, you have to actually develop the eightfold path to understand that. So thank you, uh, Rick. How are you? Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. Among admirable friends, yeah. um, I'm, you know, I, as I stated last time, I'm a little behind because I discovered John's work and, and stuff uh, prior to this class beginning. So I just completed the chapter, um, I think it was six, on, on ethical behaviors, which goes very well with what we're talking about today with the precepts. And um, uh, I, I, I'm Five out of six precepts are doing pretty good, and the one that you and I know about, John, which we'll be talking about in further depth on Friday, I've been doing well with today. Outstanding. And, um, you know, continuing with my meditation. My meditation was a little active tonight, but that's because I was, there were just bodily things going on. Um, but, again, last five minutes, I started to settle down more, and uh, just continuing. That's, that's where I'm at today. Uh, thank you, Rick, and, and really give yourself a lot of credit for what you overcame today, you know, and, and give yourself an awful lot of credit for that, please. Now, we'll talk soon. Julia, how are you? Tell that guy to share the screen with you. What did you just say? I'm sorry. I just, I t tell Michael to share the screen. He always takes up the whole screen. That's okay. I'm all Selfish guy. It's just all self-reference there. Yes, I'm a lost cause. <laughs> well, I wrote something on the precepts. Great, thank you. Because um, I source, I, 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 I feel like there's something, uh, there's something more so to the precepts. It seems like they're like, um, they're cosmic laws. They're like the, the huh? laws of life, you know. Um, I'm going to read you what I, what I wrote because it's difficult. And I, I'll just go through my notes because it's um, hard for me to just say it. Please. Um, the, the first one, I will protect life and have understanding of others. Uh, this, this precept goes beyond just taking life. It's a precept that frees us from ignorance. Yeah. It puts us in right view. Um, we cannot kill. Life goes on unimpeded. And when, um, when I see the, the world through wrong view, I'm giving importance to myself. If I have any feeling of resentment or vengeance towards another, then I shut myself from the Eightfold Path and living the Dharma. I shut myself from a mind dwelling in peaceful equanimity and harm myself. So we cannot kill what we cannot that what cannot die, which is 
Yeah, wow. The actual, the actual, um, you know, we're not, we're not, the, we're not the self, and neither are, neither is anyone else. This self that we see, this, these five cleaning aggregates, that's not the self. There's something. There's, a, there's, a, there's something else. Right. Um, the second one, do not take what is not freely given. Is kind of has to do with karma. I feel um, we cannot keep anything for which we do not have the consciousness to correspond. Whatever comes to you, whatever happens to you, whatever surrounds you will be in accordance with your consciousness. Yep. Um, this is karma. Uh, stealing is trying to get something for which you're, you're not consciously entitled to. So uh, that's the way I saw that one. Um, pretending to be something that you're not is also considered stealing because it's kind of like yep. you're trying to give an, give an impression of something that you're not. So it's kind of stealing, like stealing an identity. Yep. And um, it's it's kind of like a form of theft when you think about it. So whenever we are trying to get credit that we are not entitled to, right? Uh, we are in a sense stealing. We damage ourselves because we inflame our ego mind that's seated in ignorance and wrong view. And outer treasures are not treasures; they're just hindrances. So we can't gather those either. Yep. They'll just in the end they'll just be hindrances to us. Um, refrain from sexual misconduct means refrain from giving power to things entering through the sixth sense base. Yeah. So it, it's actually giving power to the ego self and trying to identify with everything and thereby sustaining the, the ego self identity and it's a distraction to the quality of mind. Um, I really don't have anything for the intoxicant one, but I really think that the, the intoxic, the, the one that says refrain from use of intoxicants would be because it would be a, a disruption to a calm and peaceful mind. We'd, we'd have a, a mind bouncing all over the place. That's not, right. Not staying, not staying where it belongs. And so that's what I wrote for the precepts. I, I just felt like they, there was something more there. You know, it, seems, it seemed like, you know. Uh, thank you, Julie. It's really brilliant. And you're right. The, 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 the precepts on their face are, are pretty simple. Uh, but but they, they can be taken to very subtle and profound depths. Um, the another aspect of uh, stealing or not taking what is freely given is taking from someone uh, their uh, their emotional well being that they're not freely giving you. Uh, we even have a word for it, don't we? We take other people hostage, and that's what that means. And and that that's one of the subtle aspects of uh, not taking what is not freely given is 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 treating people in that way in a manipulative and controlling way. Uh, and even the the precept on on killing relates to that because the way that we treat other people, we can literally kill their spirit. Uh, and there, when you, when I, I see that all the time in the world, uh, and again, I don't want to get into the politics or anything else, but that's almost like a, um, a modern game of killing or canceling other people is another aspect of, of killing or taking what is not freely given, isn't it? And that, again, that's become the, the modern, the modern sport or the modern game. And, uh, it, it it's, uh, it's noticeable, but that Julie, that was just brilliant. You know, thank, thank you. Thank you, John. Hello, Michael. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm going to go with noble silence and just listen tonight. So thank you. Thank you, Michael, and thank you for for the uh, the afternoon and the the companionship and the ride and all that. Hey, there's Bodie. Bodie woke up. <laughs> Hello, Tim. Come here. Come on. Ah, there you go. <laughs> that was it. 
So the uh, precepts. So the thing that really stuck out was, John, you made a note on there regarding um, obsessive behavior uh, as an expression of discursive uh, conditioned thinking yeah. that uh, is caused by a manifestation of clinging craving. So within that context, um, if you look at the precepts, anything that is addressed in a self-referential way without being aware of it is going to create this, obs- this obsessiveness yes. towards these pre- towards priests. And there's probably many more precepts. Those are the main ones. I'm sure that we could nitpick all sorts of different, we can call them ethics or values or whatever we want. But at the end of the day, it's, I, I kind of got out of that where it really has to do about discernment, right view. Mm-hmm. And yeah. looking at it through the lens of being aware and not being self-referential. Um, with with that, um, and then the other thing I wanted to to state on that is again uh, when we talked about when the Buddha talked about the um, the qualities there again um, I I just remembered the discussions that we have about being harmless yeah but that has to do with even if we do something that we think is good but if we're doing it for ourselves. That's harmful. Yeah. Okay, to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, we have to be compassionate for ourselves before we're compassionate to others. Yes. We have to take care of our bodies before we can really help other people, so on and so forth. And so when I look at those qualities, I think it's the same thing. With again, it all to me, in my mind, it goes back to understanding, to having that awareness, that separation through jhana meditation. Yeah. And seeing if we are being referential in any way towards anything that we're doing. If we are, we need to take a breath and abandon it and and do it in, in that non-referential way. And so that's kind of how the precepts kind of reminded me, kind of like a nice con- condensing the whole entire uh, course. Yeah. And that's really what I got out of this course this time as, as a main as a main topic was that awareness uh, that is developed through jhana meditation and the awareness that is developed through practicing the dhamma so that's what i got out of it. Uh, yeah, that's just brilliant um you heard the buddha's words that the that that's an expression of someone who is a jewel of the sangha uh, and i'm not you all are but uh, tim really really hit the essence of it there so thank you tim hello another jewel of the sangha josh how are you Thank you, John. A wonderful teaching. Hi, everybody. Enjoyed what everybody has to say. And I'm going to practice uh, right speech by practicing noble silence. Wow, you got it. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Uh, what is that up there? It's David. David, how are you? Hey, John. I'm going to take noble silence. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks for being with us tonight. Good evening, Jane. Good evening, John. Good evening, everybody. Um, I had not really incorporated the precepts as part of my daily practice. 
And now I think I'm going to take your advice and, and write them out and um, use them with the morning meditation as kind of a, a tone to set for the day. Yep. And then in the evening, maybe as more of like a recollection, a reflection, you know, to think about how I did. Not Not judging, but just, you know, just reflect on it, so... I'm going to add that to my practice. It, it, thank you, Jane. And and the you know you reminded me that I've been a little derelict in my teaching duties because I used to I used to pre- present it that way. It, it, it's a good idea to just review this, you know, just before you sit down to meditate, just run through the precepts. It takes two seconds, and it, just to just to reincorporate that this is the way an awakened human being acts. And and if you find yourself not acting in this in accordance with this, there's just a little more dhamma practice to engage in. That's all. That's all it means. Thank you, Jane. Good evening, Ram. Good evening. Uh, thanks for putting this section at the end of the book because it, it does really wrap up the, the whole course. Yeah. Um, and um, to see the precepts as, as a check on, on your right speech, your right action, and your right livelihood is is a wonderful way to to, to look at them. Yeah. Um, it it makes them a lot less um, rigid. Yeah, um, they're really tools for your for, for your practice, and uh, combined with uh, concentration uh, as you know as the way to 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 see you know how these precepts are working in your daily life yeah. and check that again against your your right view and there's the whole path yeah yeah well said again rom um it the 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 precepts in the paramitas and taking true refuge is the best example of being gentle with ourselves and others isn't it mm-hmm. because it it's it's a you could even put the dhamma aside for a moment uh, just to make the argument that it's the most health, most healthy way to live as a human being to live this way, whether you're a Dhamma practitioner or not, to incorporate these precepts and paramitas. Now, I don't know that many human beings could actually do that without Dhamma practice, but um, you know, there, there's some examples of um, people that incorporated these as a way of life and weren't necessarily Dhamma. And I, I'm thinking of someone like uh, Nelson Mandela, or MLK, you know, people that have that have actually lived this way. Um, of course, uh, I won't get too deep into it. Nobody's a perfect human being, but they were good examples of of how to live like this. Um, but you know, beyond that, we are. Uh, you, you've this will be the second or third time that I'm saying this, but you all are the jewel of the sangha because you've developed the dharma within you. You've developed. Um, let me put it this way: you've polished the jewel. And now you can present it to others. And that really is remarkable. And uh, this is, um, as the Buddha teaches in the Anapanasati Sutta, this is something that's rare in the world. It really is. Even during the Buddha's time, he taught those that were developing the Dhamma, his words were, a Sangha like this is something that is very rare in the world. And it was true 2,600 years ago. And it, and I was almost going to say unfortunately, but that, that really doesn't relate, does it? That would imply that things should be different. Um, it's still present today. This well-informed Sangha is still a, a pure jewel uh, in the human experience, at least for us. So, uh, well, uh, any other questions or comments? 
Okay, and uh, the uh, if you notice in the recent emails, the res- registration for our retreat is now open. Um, if you are going with us, uh, to, to I just ask you to sign up as early as you can for two reasons. One, it helps my logistics and my planning uh, greatly um, instead of having people decide in the last week. But if you do in the last week, that's fine too. Uh, but also there's, there's certain uh, considerations this year. Uh, we don't know um, this far out what the restrictions will or won't be. Um, but right now I'm kind of looking at it as severe as it could be. Um, but I've been discussing things with the ministers and uh, they're not even sure. Um, like, for instance, on our last retreat that we were going to have, uh, the one that, that the teachers led, um, initially there were some pretty severe restrictions. Uh, and there were restrictions of, as far as uh, you could only uh, stay in uh, a double room with two people if you already cohabitate. If not, you had to go in there as a single. Um, we may change that. But again, if, if you're going... Uh, sign up soon. Um, the uh, the uh, the schedule is on the website, so you can get a look at what the sessions are going to be. Uh, the uh, uh, the theme is the foundations of the Buddha's Dhamma, and uh, I'm excited to teach it. I think the suttas that uh, your teacher picked for those uh, seven plus sessions are really going to be a, a remarkable experience. So uh, we'll finish with uh, Meta as we always do. So again, take a moment to uh, become mindful of your breath in your body and let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, content and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you, John. Stay safe. See you soon. Those that can, please join us on Thursday at 2. <laughs> Have a great night. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. 
If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.